sure all of you know that hymn was written by Martin Luther. At least the uh, words were written by Luther. As I understand, the, uh, the music for that song came from, uh, from a drinking song. It was a song that was sung in the beer gardens of that day, which gives you some idea of Luther's passion to communicate to the common man. He took a tune that was widely known, changed it slightly, and put these words to it that we, uh, that we just sang. Luther was cr- quite a man. He, he literally changed the course of, of history. His concern was to reform the medieval church. He had no desire to, uh, to leave it. Uh, he began, as you know, with an attack upon the sale of indulgences, which led into uh, uh, a lot of writing and preaching uh, concerning the basis of authority in the Catholic Church, which at that time was sourced in the popes and in the councils, and it was Luther's firm belief, based upon Scripture, that uh, the only solid foundation that we have for faith and practice is the Word of God. He called the church back to its ultimate authority, which is the authority of the apostles and the prophets. And uh, for that, as you know, he was tried. He was brought before the imperial uh, diet at at, uh, Worms, and uh, he was told to recant, to retract his his writings. And uh, his words uh, on that particular occasion are well known to us. He said uh, to the emperor, Since then, your serene majesty and your lordship seek a simple answer. I'll give it in this matter, neither horned nor toothed. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of Scripture or by pure reason, for I do not trust either in the pope or in the councils alone, since it is well known that they have often er erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the Scriptures, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not retract anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. May God help me. Amen. Uh, All of you, I'm sure, are familiar with those words. And he was branded an outlaw. He was cast out of the uh, church. His life was endangered for a number of years. And that was the beginning of the so-called Protestant Reformation. He changed the course of human history. One man. One man did so. Uh, about a thousand years before, a man named Athanasius did the same thing. He was called before the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire and uh, told to recant because he was fully convinced that God had become a man. At that particular time in church history, the whole church was drifting into what was known as Arianism, which was a, it was a heresy. It was the belief that Jesus was, uh, wasn't fully God. And uh, Athanasius, uh, who was the leader of the church in Alexandria at the time, was... was uh, was probably the only one who was clinging to the idea that that God came to earth, that Jesus Christ was indeed uh, God. And the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire insisted that he recant. Uh, He said, I cannot recant. The emperor said to him, you you pertinacious, you stubborn old man, don't you know that the whole world stands against you? And Athanasius said, then I stand against the whole world. And that was the beginning of uh, the uh, statement that's come down to us in church history, Athanasius contra mundum, Athanasius against the world. And uh, he changed the course of history. One man, one man. And uh, we have a story like that in the scripture that we're going to read this morning. Daniel changed the course of human history. And the story is told uh, in chapter 6 of the book of Daniel. Will you turn there with me, please? Daniel 6. Now, actually, the uh, the uh, Jewish Bible 
uh, begins this chapter with the last verse of chapter 5. It's verse 31 in our translations. Let's uh, begin there. 531. Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. And it pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now, this Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities, his extraordinary spirit, that's what the text tells us, that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Now, these uh, four verses give us a setting for uh, the the, uh, story that, that follows. The Darius, who is mentioned here, I believe, was Cyrus. Uh, very often, uh, kings during this period would take an enthronement name. And Cyrus seems to be the name by which this man, Darius, became known. In the last verse of the chapter, verse 21, we're told that Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. And it's a very common uh, common phenomenon in, in uh, both Aramaic and Hebrew to have... Uh, that particular phrase means something like this. It's difficult to explain. But it should be read, he prospered during the reign of Darius. That is the reign of Cyrus. Now, that, that I'm not distorting the text. That is one way the text can be read. Uh, it just seems to fit. It was common, as I say, it's a common practice for them to take a different name for the first year, a throne name such as Tiglath-Pileser in the Bible is called Pul. That was his enthronement name for that first year. So I think this is the great Cyrus. Now, if you have an NIV study Bible, the footnote says this may be a man named Guberu, who was the governor. We know the governor of, of Babylon during Cyrus' time. I only mention that because one of the staff men said when we were studying the passage this past week that Guberu is known as the man who first distributed four-wheeled chariots in uh, that part of the world, uh, which became the official chariots of the Persian ski team. But uh, you can make of that whatever you want to. I think it was Cyrus. And it's important, I think, that we identify this person. If this is Cyrus, then this is the man that Isaiah describes as the anointed one of the Lord. He calls him by name. In the 8th century B.C., Long before Cyrus came to the throne in the 6th century B.C., Isaiah called him by name and called him a Messiah. That's what anointed means. He's one of the ones that our Lord anointed to carry out a particular purpose. And Cyrus's purpose in history was to free the exiles, to send them back to Jerusalem from, from Babylon. As we'll see, that, that's what he did. So I think this was Cyrus without, without uh, too much question, at least in, in my mind. The medial persian Empire was a vast empire. It spread from what is modern-day Turkey today, to the Indus Valley, all the way over in India. Uh, and in order to organize this empire, Cyrus divided it into 120 states, or satrapies. And uh, these satraps, as they're called in, in verse 2, were the governors of these states. There were 120 of them. And there were three administrators placed over the governors, one of whom is our man Daniel. So Daniel is back in, in favor now. And we're told... Uh, in these verses, that he was placed there so that uh, that the king might not suffer loss. In other words, these satraps, these governors, were corrupt. They would be stealing tax monies. And so Daniel and two other administrators were placed over them 
in order to protect the king's interest, give you some idea of the sort of integrity that you find in these in the governors of this of this time. Now we're told that because Daniel distinguished himself, the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. He planned to make him prime minister of this vast Persian empire, the second most powerful person in the world. At this, the text tells us in verse 4, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel. Now the word that's translated finds here really means to search out. They made a concerted effort to try to find some cause to oust Daniel. They tried to find grounds or pretexts for charges against Daniel in the conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was faithful, and that faithfulness is spelled out in actually in the two ways we use that term today in English. He was faithful in the sense that he wasn't corrupt. He was trustworthy. You could trust him with your... Uh, with your funds and with with responsibility, nor was he negligent. That is, he was responsible. So he was faithful in the two senses that we use that that word today. He was a good man. Uh, He wasn't afraid to get involved in the so-called dirty world of, of politics. That's not God's call for everyone, but God does call some people into politics. And Daniel was one. He had been out of favor for a period of time. Now he's placed back into a position of... Of, uh, of leadership again, and he was responsible and faithful. And these men could not find any basis for charges against him. And they said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. In other, in other words, they knew why he was a good man. They knew why he had integrities, because he'd always been upfront about his faith. He'd never hid, hidden the fact that uh, he was a, a believer. In the, in the God of Israel, even though he was in this high position. Uh, I have a friend here in city government who just uh, recently came to can to uh, candidate for the position, and uh, he talked to all the department heads in the city, and one of the first things he said when he interviewed was, I just want you to know that I'm a Christian, that my faith is very important to me. He said that without knowing whether the people he was interviewing were Christians or not, because he wanted it to be up front. Uh, it's sometimes very difficult to let people know where you are if you haven't told them. The, the longer you wait to tell them about your faith, the more difficult it is to talk about it. At least I find that's true. Because the friendship, the relationship is built on an entirely different basis. It's much better to just be up front, to tell people exactly where you stand. And that's what Daniel did. As a matter of fact, Daniel, three times a day, went to his uh, window that faced off to the west, and he flung the window open and had glass in those days. and well, They had glass, but they didn't have windows. Uh, they had lattice, uh, lattices over the windows. He'd fling these open, and he would get down on his knees, and he would face Jerusalem, and, and he would pray three times a day. Now, we don't know why he prayed three times a day. That's not mandated anywhere in the Old Testament. In Psalm 55, David said that he prayed in the evening and in the morning and at noon, and perhaps Daniel thought, well, that's a good discipline to uh, operate under, and so at night, after he got off uh, work, he would pray, and and then it, during his lunch break, or in the morning when he got up, he would pray, and during his lunch break, he would pray, and he would pray toward Jerusalem. He would pray for the peace of Jerusalem, because he knew that Jerusalem was the key to bringing salvation to the world. Until Jerusalem was rebuilt, Babylonians had destroyed it, as you know, they had they had uh, exiled all the population of 
of Jerusalem. The only ones left, as Jeremiah says, are the bad figs. All of the good people had been taken out of the city. The temple was a blackened shell. Daniel knew until Jerusalem was repopulated again with God's people and the temple was rebuilt, Messiah could not come back. He knew that provision for the world would be made at Jerusalem. A thousand years before, Abraham and Isaac went up that hill at Jerusalem, up to Mount Moriah. And uh, as you know, a ram was substituted for Isaac. And Abraham learned at that point that God was going to provide a substitute for our sin, for all of the mankind's sins. On that mountain, that's why they call it Moriah. Uh, Moriah means God will see to it or God will provide. And, and, and Daniel knew that Jerusalem was crucial to God's efforts to save the world. It had to be, the city had to be rebuilt. The temple had to be restored. So every, every day, three times a day, he got down on his knees and he prayed for the peace of Jerusalem. And everybody in town knew it. Didn't hide the fact that uh, the Lord was, was his God. Uh, so, uh, in verse 6, um, the administrators and the satraps went as a group, this was clearly a conspiracy, to the king, to Cyrus, and said, O king Darius, king Cyrus, live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed. That was a lie. Daniel certainly didn't agree. And he was one of the royal administrators have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or man during the next 30 days except you, O king, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, O king, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the laws of the Medes and the Persians. That's where that expression comes from that we, we, that we often hear. It's, 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 uh, something as immutable or as inexorable as the law of the Medes and Persians. Because once a law was in effect, once it had been signed into law by the king, it could not be altered. Which, by the way, is one indication of the, of the progressive weakening of the nations. You begin with, with Babylon and the head of gold, and then Medio Persia, the torso of silver, is, there's a declining value in the worth of the, of the metal, uh, metals, and a declining loss of power. Here's a people who were subject to their own laws in, in, in such a way that they couldn't change the laws even when the laws were, were harmful. Now, uh, they conspired against Daniel, and they went to this young, uh, well, actually he was 62, he wasn't young, but this new king, and uh, that, that, that seems younger every day, actually. <clears throat> they went to this new king, and they, and they appealed to his vanity. He's a very vain man, we know that from history. And uh, they said, we have an idea, king, why not be God for a month? And everyone will pray to you. And he thought, well, that's a fine idea. That will consolidate my, uh, my rule and my authority over, over, this, uh, over these people. And so he agreed to it, signed it into law, and uh, it couldn't be changed. Couldn't be rescinded. Couldn't be revoked. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs window where the windows opened toward Jerusalem, three ten times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed and gave thanks to his God because, literally, the sentence reads, because he had been doing it. In other words, it was a, it was a habit. It's a practice, pattern. Went back to doing what he'd always done. Now, there are all sorts of ways that Daniel could have handled his problem. He could have sat at his desk, you know, and done one of these things and Sort of scratched his head, prayed a quick prayer. He could have prayed silently. He could have wait, waited until he went. He got home, and 
He could have stopped praying out of the window. There are all sorts of alternatives to, uh, to, to flagrantly disobeying this law, but, but Daniel wouldn't do it. And we have to ask ourselves the question, why? There's nothing in the Old Testament that mandates prayer three times a day. There's nothing in the law that says you have to pray in public, facing toward Jerusalem, where everyone can see you. He could have, he could have softened the impact of this law in various ways, but he didn't do it. Why? Well, the reason he continued to pray as he always had is because he knew that the issue was not the method of prayer, but the fact of prayer. You see, this decree stated that for 30 days, no one could pray to any god except the king. And that is in direct violation of, of the word of God. Uh, a number of years ago, my son was working for Morrison Knudsen up at the uh, molybdenum mine up near Chalice. And every once in a while, he had to uh, be flag man. It was a boring job. He'd stand out on the highway and flag trucks, and they'd come by about every half hour. And the rest of the time, he just stood and stared off into space. So he carried his little New Testament around with him, and he'd take it out in between trucks, and he'd, and he'd read the New Testament. Until his foreman came by and said, no, you can't do that. Put your New Testament up. So what'd he do? Well, he put his New Testament up, see, because you could read his New Testament at home. He could read it in the morning. He could read it during the lunch break. But he could see the reason for not reading it when there are trucks coming by. And, you know, it just wasn't, wasn't the right thing to do, because the foreman was not saying you can't read your Bible. Now, if he said that, that'd be a different thing. Because we know faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, and we have to read the scriptures. Supreme Court says you can't, can't pray in, out loud in, in school. So don't pray out loud, out loud in school. That's all right. Pray at home. Pray silently at your desk. We're all waiting the outcome of, of whatever legislation is produced by this, uh, by this state of affairs. We don't know what's going to happen. But in the meantime, until the law is changed, don't pray in school. Just that simple. Because there's nothing in the Old Testament that says you have to pray in school. You just have to pray. But if the Supreme Court came through with a law that says you can no longer pray, that's a different thing. You might as well pray at school. Because sooner or later, you're going to have to face the fact that you're violating the law. And that's where Daniel was in this situation. He realized, all right, so I shut the, the windows and pray inside. I'm still violating the law. It's just a question of time before they start peeping through the window and they see me praying in silence. And praying silently. So I didn't make any difference where he drew the line. He just had to draw it at some point. So he, because he'd always been praying with his head out the window, he continued to pray facing the west. He prayed. Um, then, verse 11, these men went as a group, all 120 governors and administrators and others, found Daniel praying and asking God for mercy. So actually the word rather than help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days anyone who prays to any god or man except you, O king, will be thrown into the lion's den? Wasn't it signing the law, they say? The king says the decree stands in accordance with the laws of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be annulled. Then they said to the king, well, Daniel, who's one of the exiles, by the way, they don't call him one of the administrators. He's one of the exiles, one of these Jews, one of these foreigners. One of the exiles from Judah pays no attention to you, O king, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed because he loved this man. He trusted him. 
And uh, he was determined to rescue Daniel, Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Called his legal uh, experts in and they looked for loopholes. There's simply no, no way that he could be saved. Then the man went, to the, uh, went as a group to the king and said to him, Remember, O king, that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king had his hands tied. There was nothing he could do. So he gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. Uh, we know that uh, the kings during that time kept lions, much as we keep lions in a circus, just uh, just to see them, enjoy them. They hunted lions, often captured them alive, and they put them in these these dens. Normally, they were pits. Uh, this was not a cage, uh, sort of thing you'd see in a zoo, but a, a stone pit with a, a, a hole at the top through which food and people could be dropped from time to time. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, may he rescue you. And Or in our vernacular, may God have mercy on your soul. Now, I, I think Daniel must have talked often to Cyrus about his faith. This man knew a great deal. Uh, you know, it's interesting. If you turn back to Isaiah 45, let me... Let me read to you just a portion of what, what Isaiah says about Cyrus. Now, remember, Isaiah wrote in the 8th century B.C. Cyrus came uh, to the throne in the 6th century B.C., 539. In fact, we even know when he conquered Babylon, October the 12th, 539. So uh, this is a couple of hundred years uh, before Cyrus came to the throne, Isaiah said. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, his Meshach, his Messiah. To Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of, to subdue nations before him, to strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and will level the mountains. I will break down the gates of bronze and cut down the bars of iron. Why did Persia succeed? Why did the Medo-Persian Empire become the, one of the greatest empires the world has ever known? Because God brought it into being. He caused it to happen. He's the, the uh, architect of history. And then in verse 4, For the sake, this is all done for the sake of Jacob, my servant, of Israel, my chosen. I call you by name, and I bestow on you a title of honor, though you do not acknowledge me. Cyrus was a commoner. Came uh, not from a royal family, and yet he was, he, he rose to become the, the king of this vast empire. He says, though you don't acknowledge me, though Cyrus didn't have room in his life for God, God honored him. I am the Lord, he says, and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen the, you, though you have not acknowledged me, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, men will know there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and, and there is no other. This is the great Cyrus that we're, that we're talking about here in Daniel 6. And I think Daniel must have talked to Cyrus and he must have shown him that passage in, in Isaiah. Cyrus knew about the, the God of Israel. So uh, a stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and the rings of his nobles so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating, without entertainment, without the normal diversions that were brought to him. But he couldn't sleep. 
Here's a man who is overcome by anxiety and guilt and, and fear, spends a sleepless night pacing the floor, worrying about, about Daniel. And uh, Daniel is down in the lion's den, uh, takes a mangy old lion and fluffs it up and puts his head down on its side and goes sound asleep. Daniel enjoyed a good, good night's rest. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an, in an anguished voice, Daniel! Servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel, the same angel described as one like a son of man who was in the fiery furnace with Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight. You know, I read this this time. I, 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 I thought of the passage that we read in John about our Lord when it, he said Satan is coming and Satan sometimes is described as, you know, as a roaring lion. And Jesus said he has no power over me because he finds nothing in me. There's no toehold. There was no place that Satan could take hold of our Lord and control him because his life had been lived out in, in complete honesty and and in righteousness before God. And uh, I couldn't help but think of that as I read that passage. He haven't hurt me because I was innocent in his sight. Nor have I done any wrong before you, king. I haven't wronged you. I haven't wronged God. I've been innocent in this, in this matter. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted out of the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. Uh, and again, remember when Daniel's three friends were, were taken out of the fiery furnace, it says they didn't even smell like smoke. You know, they didn't drag Daniel out and have to stitch him up. You know, he'd been clawed and mauled. And, and they, they chewed on parts of his anatomy. You know, he didn't have a single wound anywhere. I thought of Paul's words, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. You know, he didn't come out bedraggled. And, and almost terminal, he, he walked out without a single wound because, it says, he had trusted in his God. It's an unusual word for trust that's found here. It's used in the Old Testament for things that hang loose. It's used for the, uh, the curtains in the temple that, were, that hung limply from, uh, from the bars that, that, uh, that carried them. It's that idea of total, absolute reliance, hanging limply in the Lord's hands, trusting him solely. Two things I know about this uh, passage that are very important. We're going to talk about them in, in a moment. Daniel says, I, I wasn't uh, injured because I, I was innocent in God's sight and, and I did you no wrong. And secondly, because he trusted in his God. No wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den along with their wives and children. That was Persian practice. Uh, that made it helped to uh, ensure that the head of the house uh, was uh, honest because the whole family was punished if, uh, if the man was found to be dishonest. So they were all thrown into the lion's den. 
along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lands overpowered them and crushed all their bones. The point of the addition of that, uh, that statement is not uh, uh, because it's so uh, grim, but simply to let us know these are not paper tigers. These were real, honest-to-goodness lions. These were not tame lions. They were ferocious lions. Daniel escaped. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language throughout the land. I hope you get the impact of that statement. Throughout the whole Persian Empire, which is basically the civilized world, this decree was, uh, was read. May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree, and, and, and remember, a decree uh, from the king was immutable, couldn't be changed. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of, of Daniel. For he, and he alone, is the living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heaven, in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. The order of that statement, heavens and earth, is significant because he not only rules in the heavens, Cyrus realized that he, he ruled here on the earth. He dealt in the practical affairs of, of men and women. And as an illustration, he rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius, that is, the reign of Cyrus the Persian. The striking thing is that, is that one man, one man did all of this. One man acting righteously. Two things happened as a result of, of Daniel's willingness to stand tall in, in these circumstances. One is that the Jews throughout the Persian Empire, and, and, and they, there were many, many exiled Jews. They were scattered all over this part of the world. They were permitted to worship God where they'd been harassed and persecuted before. That harassment was lifted. Their faith became illicit, a legal religion. And uh, there were many others, I'm sure, who were influenced because they could then begin to give witness openly without uh, fear of, uh, of reprisal. That's the first result. The second result is because of Daniel, the exiles were able to return to Jerusalem. Did you know that? Turn back to the to book of Ezra, if you will. It's a little difficult to find. First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, and then the book of Ezra. Chapter one. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. The Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm. And put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. Incidentally, I, I didn't mention it, but the passage starts out this way. It says, Darius received the kingdom at the age of 62. And it's another one of those incidental references to the sovereignty of God. God gave him his kingdom. Isaiah says the same thing in Isaiah 45. And now Cyrus says it. God has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem, in Judah. That's a well-known fact from history that, that Cyrus not only returned the Jews to their temple, but he, 
he, he began a policy of restoring people back to their countries. He became a, a much more uh, uh, compassionate man. And uh, other, other uh, exiles from other parts of the world were able to return because of, of this man's kindness. He has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem and Judah. Every one of his people among you, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem and Judea and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, the city for which Daniel had been praying all these years. And the people of any place where survivors may now be living are to provide him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with freewill offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. So he not only issued the edict that permitted the Jews to go back, but he also saw to it that the funds that were necessary to rebuild the city were placed in, into their hands. Now this from a pagan Persian king. And I say, why? Because one man, one man was willing to stand tall. Now there were two things that protected him. The first is that he was a righteous man. He had integrity. I'm innocent, he said, before God and before you. Now, Danny doesn't mean he's sinless. He simply means that he's blameless. That when he sinned, he dealt with his sin. He confessed it, and it was put away. The intent of his heart was to do what was right. He was a righteous man. And secondly, he trusted in God. Now, he wasn't appreciated. And we won't be appreciated when we take these kinds of stands. Now, some of you right now are being called upon to take this kind of stand in your home. You've had to make, make a decision about something that's happening. It's morally wrong. And you said, I, I, I can't go along with that. can't do that. Perhaps it's to your mate. Or perhaps in your employment, you're being asked to do something that is ungodly. And, and you've had to say, I can't do that. That's contrary to, to Scripture, you see. And uh, you think, well, people ought to appreciate righteousness. After all, all I'm trying to do is, is to make things better. I'm trying to be salt and light, trying to arrest the spread of corruption. I'm trying to dispel darkness. But you're not appreciated. People don't understand. They vilify you, criticize you, talk behind your back, make jokes about you. It happens all the time. To me, one of the most uh, uh, poignant uh, illustrations from church history is a caricature on the wall uh, of a, a barracks, an army barracks in, in Rome, dates from the first century A.D., shortly after Christ's time. There's a cross on the wall, and on the cross is the figure of a man who's crucified, and the man has the head of a donkey, and underneath is the caption, Anaxagoras worships his God. And you just have to think about that for a minute to realize here's a young Roman soldier who was a Christian who had converted from paganism to Christianity and he was trying to be a good soldier, presumably, and someone had uh, scratched on the wall a figure of Christ with a head of an ass and had written underneath, Anaxagoras worships his God. And that's the sort of thing that we're going to find when you try to live righteously in, in this world. You will not be appreciated. This world is not a friend of grace to help you on to God. This is, this is a battle. This is not a garden. We're no longer in the Garden of Eden. It's a struggle. It's a battle. And you will be criticized. You will be vilified. You will have people write editorials about you, perhaps. 
But nevertheless, we need to do what's right, no matter what it costs us. And when we have to make these stands, we have to rely upon the weapons of righteousness, which are the same weapons that, that, that our friend Daniel used. The first is personal righteousness. We've got to have a heart to do what God wants us to do. That's what we're called to, personal righteousness. If we've wronged someone, we, we have to confess that wrong. We have to tell them that we've wronged them and, and try to set things right. And we need to ask to God to give us a heart of righteousness. If we're not walking with God, then for goodness sake, let's don't tell anybody we're Christians. Tell them you're a druid or something, but don't tell them you're a Christian. That's the first thing. We need to be righteous. That's the first weapon that God puts into our hands. A powerful weapon. It's the light that, that does dispel darkness. Second thing we need to do is, is to pray, as Daniel did. He prayed for help. He prayed for mercy. He prayed for Jerusalem. And prayer is a vital, powerful weapon that we're to employ. The third thing is, is love. Uh, you notice Daniel's courtesy all the way through. Didn't get angry. Didn't attack the court. He, uh, he just went about his business of doing what God had called him to do. He was firm. But he was kind. I, I so often quote, and I'm sure you all are tired of hearing this, but I so often quote 2 Timothy 2. The servant of God must not strive, must not be argumentative. That's a command. But be patient with all men. Gentle. In meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. We have no right to be hostile and angry. And we can be angry, but we have no right to be hostile and, and, uh, uh, and to, to, to uh, vilify those that criticize us. Uh, they're, they're not the enemies, I've said before. They're the victims of the enemy. And if they're to be one at all, they're one through kindness and the proclamation of, of truth. Uh, and the, the final weapon is simply truth. Righteousness, prayer, love, and the proclamation of, of truth. And you see all of these here in this, in this chapter. Now, we have a, a real live example of this sort of thing in, in our midst. I've already mentioned the editorial uh, that appeared in the Statesman Friday a week ago. Uh, as many of you know, David Forey uh, was concerned about pornography in our, in our community. And he ought to be concerned. We all ought to be concerned. Uh, let me say, this is not a First Amendment issue. It is simply not. We're not talking about opposition to free speech. We're talking about opposition to pornography. And there is no question that pornography uh, destroys a man's soul. There's also no question that pornography can produce violence toward women. That's not, uh, that's not the statement of a few fundamentalists. That's a hard scientific fact. There have been hundreds of studies done in the last 10 to 15 years that establish that pornography does result in some cases in violence toward women. Uh, the, so many of the... Uh, uh, the uh, women's uh, groups, such as now, have recognized that for a long time. It brutalizes and hardens men. And even if it doesn't result in violence toward women, it does result in a, in a desensitizing of men toward their women. 
And I am uh, convinced that it's one of the, the reasons why our divorce rate is, is rocketing. It's why we have so many battered uh, wives now. It's why there is so much unhappiness in marriages. Uh, it is directly attributable to pornography. To say pornography does not affect you is just craziness. It's absolute craziness. If what you see on television doesn't affect you, then why is industry spending $10 billion a year in order to influ influence us to buy their product? Of course it influences you. So it, it's, a, it's a major problem in our community. And someone needs to do something about it. Now, I, you know, you might use a different method than David employed. Uh, there, there are all sorts of ways to go about this sort of thing. But the man's heart was right. He wanted to see righteousness uh, brought about in, in our community. And uh, he's, been, he's been vilified. He's been criticized. He's been called a do-gooder. Uh, he uh, has been ridiculed on the job. We need to pray for him. We need to support him and encourage him. And wherever we can, in our sphere of influence, we need to do what we can to defend David and also to uh, defend the right of our community to deal with pornography. It is a very serious problem. And I want to say again, the fact that you know the, the, the First Amendment issue is a red herring. It's a red herring. Promoted by those who, whose bottom line is love of money, not love of people. It is not a political issue. It is not a constitutional issue. It is a matter of opposition to something that can destroy our society. Now, here's, there's a place where we can take a stand. Gently, graciously. There, there is a, a, a petition that's being circulated, which we're asked to sign. I felt that I could not sign it because the petition itself attacks the man who wrote the editorial in the same spirit in which he attacked David. And I think that's a violation of Second Timothy. Therefore, I personally can't sign it, though you, feel, you may feel that, that you can. I got on the phone, and I called the man. I, I happened to know him, and I told him that I appreciate much of what he's done and said in the past, but I felt that this was an unprincipled attack upon a man who is trying to bring about righteousness in our community. And I hope I was gracious, and I hope I was kind, but I was as firm as I could be. And I think that's the approach we need to take. We need to stand up against evil wherever we see it or find it. And we need to make ourselves known, but we need to do it in a spirit of love and kindness and respect for the people. And we need to surround what we do by, uh, with prayer because that, uh, that's one of our sharpest, sharpest instruments. And then trust God for the results. Just put it in his hands. Hang loose, in other words. Don't worry. Now, let me close by... Uh, Reading 1 Peter 3. Would you turn there with me, please? Uh, it struck me that uh, 1 Peter 3 speaks uh, to this issue and actually is a summary of what we've learned from Daniel. Verse 13, who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? Now, that's a general principle, and Peter recognized that some people do harm you when you're doing what's right. As a matter of fact, uh, in the chapter before, he addresses himself to, uh, himself to slaves who were being uh, unjustly treated, though they were doing what was right. But even if you should suffer for what is right, he says, you're blessed, you're enriched, you're made fertile 
That's that's the meaning of of the term. God supplies his resources to meet our needs. This applies to uh, everyone, regardless of the stand that you've had to take, a stand against unrighteousness, wherever it exists. Even if you suffer for what is right, you're blessed. Don't don't fear their threats. The, The NIV uh, translates, do not fear what they fear. But if you look at the footnote, I think the, the better uh, wording is, do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. They can't hurt you. Jesus said, better to, to be afraid of him who can kill body and soul than the one who simply can kill body. And we don't have anything to fear from men. What can a man do to us? Take your life? Can't affect your destiny. Can't affect your relationship to Christ. Don't be afraid, he says. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Let them know that God is the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. If you want an illustration of the good you can do by suffering for righteousness sake, look at our Lord. Look at our Lord. He suffered injustice and he saved the whole world. So... uh, Be innocent. Trust God. It may well be that you can change the course of history. Let's pray. Lord, give us the courage to to believe what we know is true and to take a stand on those things that we've been taught from your word. We ask for wisdom to know how to, how to make these stands. We need, we need grace to make them in a, in a winsome way, in an attractive way. And even if people misunderstand us, Lord, and even if, if, if people deride us, defame us, we know that, that they, they did the same to you. We're in good company. And that you... You brought about righteousness as a result of of your persistence in doing good. And that's what we want. We would like to change our community, Lord. We'd like to change our our block, the business in which we work, the school where we study, the farming community where we live. We'd like to see people reached for Christ. We'd like to see, uh, we'd like to be salty and full of light in those places. We want to affect deeply our community, Lord, for your sake. We're not playing games, Lord. We're simply asking that your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. That people all around us would would bow their knee to you and acknowledge you as their Lord. We use us to do that. Each, Each one of us, individually and corporately, to do your will as you've called us to do it. And we thank you for your grace that makes it possible. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.